Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am here with Stefano Ehrman, who is an assistant professor at Stanford University. Stefano and I connected after his presentation at the recent Rework Deep Learning Summit, where he spoke on machine learning for sustainability. Stefano, why don't you say hi to the audience? Hi, everybody. Thanks, Sam, for the invitation. It's it's great to, to be here with you today. I'm really excited to have you on the show I uh, enjoyed your presentation and uh, spent a little bit of time looking into some of the work that your group is doing at Stanford. And I found a really interesting mix of uh, fundamental research into machine learning techniques, as well as a strong interest in a particular application area, notably sustainability. Um, so why don't you get us started by talking about, you know, how those talking about the how those two kind of meld for you and how you arrived at your area of focus? Sure, yeah. So uh, a lot of the research that we do in my group is really at the foundation, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So we do a lot of work on probabilistic modeling of data, uh, developing scalable and accurate inference techniques for high-dimensional probabilistic models of data, uh, knowledge representation, and uh, decision-making under uncertainty techniques. So we're really interested in the whole pipeline of going from data to extracting knowledge, extracting insights from the data to using these uh, insights to improve the way we make uh, decisions. And uh, as, as uh, a lot of the work is really foundational, so we prove theorems, develop algorithms, develop new models, but uh, we also like to think about real-world problems and I'm particularly excited about uh, uh, new applications areas for AI and machine learning. And as you mentioned, one that I'm, I'm really excited about is this new area of computational sustainability, uh, where we're trying to apply computer science techniques and, and generally use uh, ideas from computational thinking to help solve and address some of the big sustainability issues of our times. And these include things like uh, poverty or uh, environmental issues or energy, sustainable energy problems, uh, natural resource management, uh, problems in ecology and so forth. So uh, I'm very, very interested in finding ways to uh, use these new amazing technologies that we've been developing in the past uh, 10 or 20 years in, in AI and machine learning and use them to address problems that are extremely important, I think, uh, but perhaps they don't, they are not uh, studied as much as they should in the in the field of machine learning and AI. Uh, I think you're right that they're not studied as much as they should be. How did you arrive at uh, that? research focus as opposed to one of the more popular or buzzy, buzzworthy areas like robotics and uh, or even here in the Valley, getting people to click on ads. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, so it all started with my PhD, actually. So uh, I did my PhD in computer science at Cornell University. And right when I joined, uh, my advisor uh, had just received a big grant from NSF, an expedition in computing to start a whole new research area in computer science and uh, the, the idea was really to try to see whether we can uh, take all these amazing techniques and ideas that we have and use them to address problems in the sort of in the public space uh, the idea being that uh, information technology and computers and and ai have have really revolutionized the way people live and a lot of way people do businesses and they, they really changed uh, the world. Mm -hmm. But if you think, on the other hand, at the way we try to solve some of the big societal problems that we have in the sort of in the public space, dealing with the environment and how we manage our natural resources or, or how we try to sort of close the gap between developing and developed countries, uh, we're still not taking advantage of all these, uh, these ideas just because there is not so much economic incentive to sort of uh, apply, develop the necessary models, develop the necessary algorithms, figure out how to actually use them to solve these problems. And so, you know, that was kind of how it got started. Started and and uh, I've been working on those kind of problems uh, basically ever since, so for almost ten years now. 
Very nice. Now, in your presentation, you uh, shared some statistics around the impact of the problems that you're going after with regard to poverty and food security and the environment. You know, in many ways, I think it, it's kind of obvious that these are important issues. But uh, like you say, in a lot of ways, they're understudied because of the, the lack of a driving economic incentive. You know, can you share some of those stats or at least the ones that inspire you to continue pursuing this work? Right. Like I was actually looking at the 2030 uh, Agenda for Sustainable Development that was recently adopted by the United Nations. Uh, and if you look uh, at the kind of problems that were sort of identified as being some of the big uh, societal challenges that uh, sort of all the, the governments in the world should be uh, working together to, to address, we see things like ending extreme poverty. Uh, there are still hundreds of millions of people around the world uh, living in extreme poverty or eliminating hunger. It turns out that, again, there are lots of people, uh, especially in places like Africa and Asia and so forth, that don't have enough to eat. Or, uh, you know, protecting biodiversity. You know, there's this huge uh, biodiversity loss, and uh, we need to find ways to manage our resources in a more sustainable way so that uh, we can sort of guarantee the, the welfare, not just of our current generation, but also of our children and the generations that, come, that will come after them. So these are all big, important problems. And uh, a lot of them, they, they, one of the challenges why they are so difficult is partially because they involve this, this sort of global scale phenomena, uh, like thinking about, say, climate change or, or how to manage these very large uh, uh, ecosystems or the fact that we need to deal with multiple agents that are sort of, that have different objective functions and they're interacting with each other. But there is clearly like a computational uh, component to these problems, but so far it has not been studied so much. And so one of the focus of my research is really to try to find ways to uh, apply these techniques from AI and computer science to help address some of these issues. And on that note, are you do you come at things from the perspective of, uh, as you said, applying applying techniques that are developed in AI and machine learning research uh, to this uh, application area or the other way around, meaning identifying specific problems in the research area and using those to drive research around uh, specific techniques? That's a great question. I actually like to think of it as a two-way street. Uh, where from <laughs> So the yes and on, yes? <laughs> yes. Uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, sometimes uh, we start with a problem and we realize that uh, maybe we don't have the tools right now or we don't have the right models to address the problem. And that often happens because this problem has not been studied so much in computer science. So there's always some aspect of these problems that has not been studied before or some variation that sort of give rise to a new uh, problem and that will require new models, new algorithms, and, and we can sort of publish our papers in, in sort of top AI and machine learning conferences. And uh, on the other hand, uh, we also like to do a lot of uh, foundational research. And so sometimes uh, you know, we, we know about all the capabilities sort of that we, that we have right now at the cutting edge of AI and machine learning. So just by talking with, with my colleagues at Stanford, sometimes I hear about, you know, I ask them what are the problems that they are working on. And, so, and we try to find ways to, to use these new, these new ideas and apply them to help them solve these this, this very important problems. So one reason why this it's interesting that you take this two way street approach is because I, I spend quite a bit of time following companies that are trying to democratize machine learning and AI. And often what they're doing is trying to create generalized machine learning and AI platforms. And, you know, in fact, you know, all of the, the large cloud Companies like Google, Microsoft and Amazon are trying to do that same thing. Um, but then we have a group like yours that you know has a fundamental focus on a specific application area that drives you know, deep, deep, unique research into the field. I'm wondering what's your just what's your take on that? Do you, do you feel like what uh, what's the role of what's your take on the role of kind of generalized machine learning and AI techniques and versus uh, very application specific techniques? I think there's definitely a lot of value, like in, in sort of developing uh, 
tools, uh, that then frameworks that can be easily uh, used by people that might not necessarily be domain experts. Uh, I think, uh, and, and that will definitely help uh, in, in a lot of contexts, including in, in the sustainability space. But I do believe that uh, sometimes you do, you really need to develop. There is some actual research to be done. Uh, there are some problems that uh, require actually new techniques. Uh, and so there is, there's definitely a lot of space for developing new new ideas, new models that maybe are motivated by this specific application, but then they can be potentially applied down the line to other problems that in completely different domains. I think that's kind of the beauty of computer science is this idea of abstraction that uh, you know we develop these general models, these general algorithms that mm-hmm. are maybe inspired by one specific problem, but then you know a few years later somebody else comes up with a completely uh, different and new application that you maybe you would never have thought about, and, and they apply exactly the same algorithm to this to this new problem. Right. I think that's really the, the power of computer science, these layers of abstraction. Right. Right. So let's maybe uh, try to get try to get more concrete and talk through some of the specific research that your work, your group is doing and how how it's uniquely applied in this application area. And one of the papers that I came across uh, on your group's website, which I'll link to in the show notes, is uh, one on deep Gaussian process for crop yield prediction based on remote sensing data. Yeah. Uh, crop yield prediction uh, is, uh, we'll talk about the importance of that that problem and the data source and then walk us through kind of what the research is is hoping to achieve. Yeah. So that particular paper, we looked uh, at, we were looking at problems in the food security space. Uh, it turns out that there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of people around the world that uh, don't have enough to eat uh, or, you know, and suffering from uh, various kind of uh, food crises due to weather, climate change, um, land like erosion or like rising waters, all sorts of problems are, are, are kind of uh, causing these this, this food security issues. And uh, we know that the situation is going to get worse with time, uh, the world population is growing uh, and uh, we're going to have to find a way to, there's an estimated, I think, 2 billion more people that we're going to have uh, in 2050 and we're going to have to find ways to feed this growing population. And so the the kind of uh, problem that we looked at was that of trying to see whether we can use uh, inexpensive, cheap, uh, unconventional data sources like satellite data to uh, keep track and, and uh, predict various uh, food security measures and uh, monitor agricultural outcomes. So in particular, we uh, try to develop these uh, machine learning techniques uh, to predict uh, just by looking at the images of the earth from space to predict uh, uh, how the, the kind of level of agricultural productivity of uh, a geographical area just by looking at it from from space. So essentially, we developed some some machine learning models that can track the growth of plants from space and use that information to predict ahead of time how much in in that particular application we're looking at soybeans, but we. Since then, we've extended it to, to corn and other and other crops. Uh, we are able to actually predict very accurately from space using cheap and conventional data sources the level of productivity of different uh, geographical regions. And uh, this is important because given this kind of data, we can start collecting this kind of data, especially in developing countries. It's very expensive. Uh, we don't have much data on this kind of uh, on these kind of measures in places like Africa. And so if we had a way to measure this, uh, say, crop yields or other food security measures like uh, stunting or things like that, that could be extremely useful to improve the the kind of policies that uh, both governments and NGO uh, use uh, things like uh, predicting whether there's going to be a famine in a certain region or whether a certain government should... uh, uh, stock uh, more, uh, increase their, the levels of sort of uh, food uh, reserves uh, in case that there's an emergency and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Hmm. And so in this particular case, remote sensing data, the satellite imagery is where did that come from? Is this uh, Google Maps type data, for example, or Google Earth type data or a government or proprietary data source? It, it's actually publicly available data. We were using data from uh, from NASA, okay. uh, the MODIS satellites. 
So this is uh, publicly available data. They take an image of the basically the entire world every eight days. And this is multispectral data. So it's not just sort of like visible RGB bands, but there's uh, there's also infrared and other bands uh, that contain additional information that we can use in our machine learning system to make our predictions. Okay. Uh, so you started uh, with the goal of taking this multimodal or image sensing image data and trying to predict crop yields uh, based on it. And uh, along the way, developed uh, some new techniques around uh, one that was called out in the paper is uh, dimensionality reduction. Can we spend some time talking about that particular technique and its novelty and even the, the step before that, you know, for folks that aren't familiar with it, what is dimensionality reduction and why is it important in this problem space? Yeah, so the, the challenge in this uh, for this kind of application is that we didn't have a whole lot of training data available. Like these days, if you have a lot of training data, then you can take a sufficiently high capacity model, like a big, large network, say, and uh, there is a high chance that... Uh, with a sufficiently large amount of training data, you will be able to do a pretty good job at predicting these kind of uh, outcomes that, uh, that we care about. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of the sustainability applications, like in this case for predicting uh, crop yields, and also we did some other work on, on predicting uh, other kind of socioeconomic measures of interest like poverty, uh, it turns out that the amount of training data available is extremely limited. It's very, very scarce. And so you cannot just train a machine learning system, a state-of-the-art uh, machine learning learning system end-to-end -end from inputs to outputs. And so what we did is we've been developing several uh, techniques uh, to try to get away with less training data. Uh, one in particular that we use, the, the one, the particular dimension, which, and, and there are several ways to do it. Uh, uh, sometimes, and essentially, in all the cases, we, we either do transfer learning, so we try to use some proxy for the measures that we care about to get some signal and maybe pre-train the system and learn something useful about the structure of this kind of uh, multispectral images that we, that we use as input, or we use some kind of prior knowledge um, maybe something about uh, the something that we know about the outcomes that we're trying to predict or relationships between input and outputs, and we can use it. We can sort of put that into the system to make sure that we can basically get very good results, even when we don't have a whole lot of training data. In this particular context, the dimensionality reduction technique that we used was uh, an idea that we had to uh, essentially reduce uh, the dimensionality of the inputs. An image is very high dimensional. You have a lot of pixels and they can take uh, many different values. So it's a very high, sort of the input data lies in a very high dimensional space, although there is a lot of structure. And uh, so in some sense, the, the information that we care about is actually can be extracted from uh, without really looking at the exact position of all the pixels in the image. So what we came up with was an idea to uh, reduce the dimensionality of the inputs uh, while preserving most of the information content. And the idea was fairly simple. The idea was that, well, if you care about predicting uh, crop yields, it doesn't really matter uh, where the fields are in the in the image so the the, the the soybean fields are in the image the, their actual location doesn't matter you said the so what can, fields the, the, let's say the, the the soybean fields soybean fields okay the actual position in the image whether they appear in the sort of uh, top right corner or the left bottom corner doesn't mm -hmm. really matter right so you can use this prior knowledge to uh, essentially reduce the dimensionality of the inputs while preserving the information content and uh, that makes uh, learning the problem easier. So when I think about the image problem, in what way is that a high dimensionality problem? And, you know, how do those dimensions correspond to the, the actual problem space? Well, you have basically one dimension for every pixel in the image. So if you have, I don't know, like a thousand by a thousand pixels there, you have like a million dimensions for your inputs. And that's essentially what's causing you, uh, what's causing the problem. It, it, it's very high dimensional, and so uh, it's known that this, a lot of uh, machine learning algorithms, a lot of algorithms in computer science, they suffer from this curse of dimensionality problem. Mm -hmm. That uh, as the dimensionality grows, uh, the, the volume of objects grows exponentially fast. And so, kind of the coverage that you have of this very high dimensional space by getting samples that you have from your training data is extremely, extremely sparse. 
which is so high dimensional and you have like so few points that makes it very different to sort of infer something about the, what is going on in this very high dimensional space. And so you have to use some kind of prior knowledge to realize that actually, well, it does, there are certain things that don't really matter. We are looking for things that maybe are translational, invariant, or uh, maybe you know we know that some bands uh, don't matter, or we have some kind of inductive bias on, on that we can use to input that knowledge into the system so that we can still uh, do something useful, even though uh, the, the inputs are so, so high dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this case, dimensionality reduction, another way of thinking about that is just getting your machine learning algorithm to focus on the important parts of the thing that you're trying to train it on as exactly. opposed to the entire space of the images. Exactly, yes. Uh, and so you mentioned another thing you mentioned in terms of techniques for accomplishing this is transfer learning, which is yes. uh, applying pre-existing models as kind of starter models to uh, training application specific models. Is that the way you would describe that? Yeah. So the idea is that uh, you typically have a task in the case of machine learning that you want to solve, and maybe you have a limited amount of training data for that task. And so you can set up a different but related machine learning task uh, for which you have plenty of training data available. And by solving, by trying to learn how to solve this new task, the hope is that you are going to learn something useful. You're going to learn some skills that then you can transfer to your original machine learning problem that you that you care about. And this is often done with with models trained on like ImageNet data, for example. Is that something that you guys did in particular, or did you uh, apply other models to this particular problem? And how did you go about thinking about you know where to start? Yeah, so, so that's a, the ImageNet is often uh, uh, a great place to start with if you're looking with uh, if you're dealing with sort of natural images. One challenge uh, in our application domain is that we're looking at satellite images, uh, which look very, very different from the kind of images that uh, you can find in in ImageNet. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are not object-centric, like there's not a single object in the middle, like you typically have in ImageNet. Uh, They are taken sort of like from this bird's eye perspective, uh, Mm -hmm. which is very different from ImageNet. They have more bands, so it's not just RGB, but you have a whole set of other bands that you don't typically have in ImageNet. And so the kind of uh, typical features that you, that the network, say a convolutional neural network pre-trained on ImageNet is uh, able to discover do not work well uh, when dealing with uh, with satellite images. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was to uh, come up with other transfer learning ideas. This was actually for a slightly different problem in which we were trying to uh, predict the distribution of uh, uh, wealth and, 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 and poverty in this case in, uh, in developing countries. Again, we were trying to do this uh, using uh, uh, cheap and conventional data sources. In this case, we were using high-resolution satellite images. While there is very little data on, on poverty, uh, there are many African countries that have not taken a nationally representative survey, maybe in a decade or so. Satellite images are available in basically every part of the world. They get updated very frequently. And uh, they contain a lot of information about uh, various types of socioeconomic outcomes, both in terms of uh, poverty, wealth, uh, but also uh, yeah, agricultural outcomes, like uh, we s- were just talking about uh, before in the context of crop yield prediction. And uh, so the, the problem that we were looking at in that paper was that of trying to predict various types of uh, poverty estimates, like uh, asset-based uh, measures of wealth uh, or other measures of poverty based on income, again, using uh, uh, raw satellite images, which are widely available. And mm-hmm. the challenge was that, uh, again, we have very limited training data available to train these models. And so we had to do some, uh, some transfer learning. And there, the idea was that uh, it turns out that there are satellites that uh, take images of the Earth both during day and during night. And so uh, during night, uh, you get to see sort of the amount of uh, nighttime light intensity associated with, with essentially every region in the world. And it turns out that nighttime light intensity is heavily correlated with, uh, with the level of economic activity. Like uh, if, if you haven't seen it, you should try to see the difference between say, North Korea and South Korea. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see that uh, South Korea almost looks like an island at night because mm-hmm. North Korea mm-hmm. is so dark at night. And so the, the idea there was to see whether we can train a machine learning model to predict 
the amount of nighttime light, uh, nighttime light intensity for many, many locations across the world just by looking at the corresponding uh, daytime images. And uh, we could do that. And this is a task for which we have essentially an infinite amount of training data because these satellites are continuously taking images both during day and during night. And the hope was that by training the model to solve this task, it would discover features uh, that are somehow related to the, economic, the level of economic activity. And uh, it turns out that it is indeed the case. Uh, it turns out that if you train a convolutional neural net to solve this task, uh, and then you sort of try to visualize the features that the network learns, uh, you discover very features that are very semantically meaningful, like uh, there is a filter that learns how to recognize roads. Uh, other filters try to identify different types of houses or uh, other features of the landscape, like farmland, uh, whether there are roads with lots of traffic or not, even even swimming pools. And, and the nice thing was that this was all discovered in an unsupervised way. Like we never told the, the network, you know, look for houses or provide labels of what, what a road is or what a, or what a house is or what a swimming pool is. It really discovered these semantically meaningful features uh, by itself, purely by solving this uh, this transfer learning task of trying to predict nighttime line intensity from uh, daytime images. And then uh, what we did was to use uh, these features that we learned uh, in this uh, transfer learning task to actually predict uh, the various poverty measures that we cared about. And uh, because we had such good features, again, we were able to get very high accuracy, even though we had a very limited amount of training data corresponding to these uh, this poverty metrics that we, that we cared about predicting. Wow. Very, very interesting. Uh, what do you recall the name of the paper where you describe the transfer, transfer learning technique? So we had two papers on this. There was a paper, uh, a AAAI, uh, which is called uh, Transfer Learning from the Features for Remote Sensing and Poverty Mapping. Mm -hmm. And then we had a follow-up paper on science called the Combining Satellite Imagery and Machine Learning to Predict Poverty, where we actually detailed the, the kind of uh, results that we got in, uh, in predicting poverty in, across five African countries. And we showed that it can really outperform all the previously existing techniques by, by a large margin. Hmm. Uh, so in that, what were, without uh, totally losing our place on the crop yield prediction, uh, maybe can you talk through some of the techniques that went into the transfer learning work? So that's essentially the, the key, sort of the gist of the idea of the transfer learning, trying to find a task that is uh, somehow correlated with the one you care about, but for which you have a lot of training data. Uh, we didn't actually use transfer learning in the, for the crop yield prediction. Uh, we just used the dimensionality reduction. Uh, the other thing we used was an idea called semi-supervised learning, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, another approach that you can use when you have a small amount of labeled training data and a potentially very large amount of unlabeled training data, which is, for example, the case in, in our applications where we have a lot of satellite images, but uh, we have a very small amount of labels corresponding to uh, sort of the amount of soybeans that were produced in different regions or the poverty, sort of like survey-based measures of poverty. In, in developing countries. And uh, the, the kind of uh, technique that we used to do semi-supervised learning in this case is uh, um, a combination of neural networks with Gaussian processes. Uh, the idea is that uh, we're trying to predict things that have uh, a lot of structure. Like we're trying to predict the distribution of, say, wealth uh, or, or crop yields across space and time. And uh, we are expecting these outputs that we're trying to predict to change slowly as a function of time and space. Mm -hmm. And so that's some kind of prior knowledge that you can incorporate into the model. And uh, we did this using a Gaussian process, which is a, a probabilistic model that you can use to model all sorts of things, but it's very popular in the geostatistics community to sort of model functions uh, that uh, over space and time. And then you can use uh, this probabilistic model to not only make predictions, but also to measure the uncertainty that you have when you make predictions at new locations for which you don't have training data. And so is the the Gaussian 
process primarily used uh, spatially, uh, as you just mentioned, or is it also used in time, meaning uh, I've got a label at some point in time, but I don't know how the value of that label changes over time. Uh, So we apply a, a Gaussian to that or both of the above? Both of the above, yeah, in our case. We were looking both over space and time. Okay. Uh, so in general, you can use Gaussian processes over over any kind of uh, input space. They're often used uh, to, to, to model functions of the change over space and time. And uh, the, the key thing that we did was to combine this uh, with uh, neural networks. Uh, for each location in space and time, we have a corresponding image that is uh, collected by a satellite. And so we somehow want to include that information to inform the predictions that are made by this Gaussian process. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea was that uh, we could uh, somehow extract features from an image using a convolutional neural network and then use these features uh, to gather sort of the spatial and temporal structure of the problem to, to make predictions. And the nice thing about the Gaussian process is that it not only uh, allows you to make predictions, but again, it lets you quantify the uncertainty uh, that you have when you make predictions and new uh, unlabeled data points. And so our idea of doing semi-supervised learning was to uh, sort of jointly train uh, the neural network and the Gaussian process uh, in order to achieve a good fit at the points for which we had actual labels, uh, while at the same time trying to minimize the uncertainty uh, at points for which we don't have labels, points for which we have the inputs, but we don't have the outputs. And it turns out that even though uh, we don't have the actual sort of output for this, for these unlabeled data points, the Gaussian process will still be able to make a prediction and will still be able to quantify the uncertainty of this prediction. So we can jointly train both of them to actually minimize this measure of uncertainty. And that's essentially how we use uh, the unlabeled data points together with the labeled ones to uh, in this semi-supervised learning framework. And uh, in some sense, it's a form of regularization that is sort of forcing the model to look for features uh, that are not only uh, useful for the labeled data points, but they sort of also, they are also relevant for the unlabeled data points. And uh, it turns out that by using this uh, this framework, the semi-supervised framework we developed, we were able to further improve the accuracy in both the poverty prediction tasks and the crop yield prediction task. Okay, so taking a step back, you've got uh, you've got this image data from the satellites that is you know has pixels, but uh, is multimodal, so it has multiple pixels for each location. When you talk about making a prediction from a particular point, is that what's the granularity there? Are you predicting the level of wealth or poverty from a pixel, or are you somehow aggregating multiple pixels to form an area? Yeah, good question. So uh, we were looking, we were making predictions at the one kilometer by one kilometer sort of areas which correspond to to multiple pixels. So for each uh, sort of location, we would collect multiple images that would cover that location. And then we would sort of aggregate all the information and make a prediction for for that area. Okay. And so you've got all this input data. You're feeding that input data into a convolutional neural net, which is essentially taking kind of various chunks of the images and translating them, rotating them, things like that, to try to identify what are the salient features within the images. Uh, And then you're, I guess the question that I'm getting at is how and, you know, where do you marry the the Gaussian stuff with the CNN stuff? Is that a training? Is that a step that's taken in the training? Is that a feature of the model architecture? How do they tie together? Yeah, you can think of it uh, as, a, as a both. Uh, so you can sort of think that there is uh, one neural network making prediction at each different location, uh, mm-hmm. but then all the predictions that are made across different locations are all tied together uh, because we know that the outputs are spatially correlated. So if you take two locations that are close to each other, uh, we know that we're, we sort of expect the outcomes that we're trying to predict to be more similar if the locations are close to each other. And we know that empirically, if you if you plot a variogram that's measuring this, uh, there is a lot of spatial correlation in this kind of things that we're trying to predict. And so you can imagine 
the Gaussian process as an extra layer in your in your neural network at the, at the very end that is kind of tying together, coupling together all the outputs of these uh, of the predictions made by all these various convolutional neural networks. And uh, by using this, you can uh, sort of exploit this prior knowledge that you have about about the the spatial and potentially temporal dependencies uh, across the outputs. How many layers did the network end up having? We ex- yeah, we experimented with several architectures. I think the one uh, the one in the in the in the science paper it was based on a VGG uh, network. More recently, we've we've been playing with ResNet for so fifty layers. And uh, those tend to work even better. And what's the? Do you have a sense for the relative performance, you know, with and without the Gaussian layer? Or I imagine that's what you talked about in your paper. But was that, you know, did the, I guess the, you know, fundamentally did the Gaussian layer make this possible, or was it adding an incremental boost in performance? It's uh, it's adding an incremental boost in performance. I think you could have gotten some reasonable results uh, even without the Gaussian process, but the Gaussian process uh, definitely definitely helped by maybe improving by maybe ten percent or fifteen percent, something like that. Mm. Was there anything in particular else that you learned about the process of architecting networks for this type of problem in the context of this work? Well, one thing, the, the, the thing that, uh, that matters the most uh, is that uh, somehow there is, uh, it, it's, um, it's, it's quite interesting how we started uh, trying to sort of inspire the architectures and try out networks that were sort of loosely inspired by the by what our domain experts would tell us was was important. Say in the context of crop yield prediction, there has been quite a bit of work in the remote sensing literature in coming up with the handcrafted features that uh, and various types of indexes, combination of various bands uh, that uh, they think are going to be predictive of uh, uh, vegetation growth and therefore also crop yields. And uh, it turns out that uh, if you actually train uh, the, the neural network to sort of discover the features by itself, uh, just by sort of, uh, sort of doing representation learning using a modern machine learning approach where we let the data speak for itself and, and sort of try to identify which features are relevant directly from data, it turns out that uh, our model ended up using a very, very different kind of uh, in- sort of different inputs ended up matter mattering much more for our model than what was previously thought in the remote sensing literature. So some bands that people thought were not particularly important for for crop yield prediction ended up being very, very important for our neural network and vice versa. So I think it's it's similar to what's going on, what happened in computer vision where people for a long time were handcrafting features and uh, and then uh, it turns out that if you sort of train end to end the neural network, you can do a lot better than uh, than anything sort of people had uh, the, all the kind of handcrafted features that people had come up with uh, in, in over the years. And so something similar was happening also in this case that using uh, using this this modern machine learning techniques, we were able to come up with very different features than what was previously thought was used. And do you attribute the difference between what your models came up with and what domain experts tended to use with, you know, with with biases on the part of the domain experts, with confounding factors in the model or the use case, any particular insights there? So unfortunately, this, this uh, neural networks are very powerful and making predictions, but it can be hard to really, they are not very interpretable. <laughs> so right, it, it can right. be very hard to, to figure out exactly what they're doing. Uh, we talk about so, that problem quite a bit on the show. So. <laughs> right, right. So we had the same issues and sort of trying to understand and trying to explain what this model is doing was, was, very, was very hard. And so... Uh, we don't have a good sense of uh, why but the, at the moment it's something we're actually uh, actively researching and really trying to understand what is this model capturing and, and why does it perform so much better than, than previous techniques. But I think we're going to need probably entirely new techniques to, to figure out these, uh, these issues uh, in a more um, principled way. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, when you describe the approach of using the nighttime imagery to train the model on the daytime imagery, imagery, it reminded me a little bit of another one of your recent papers, uh, also a AAAI paper from this year uh, on the label-free supervision of neural networks with physics. And so there are a lot of kind of a lot of parallels there. But this one, the context in which it's talked about in this paper is kind of an interesting one where you've got models that you're trying to predict. Uh, well, I guess I should allow you to explain. Okay. <laughs> uh, go, why don't you go ahead and explain what the yeah. uh, the focus of that paper was? Sure. So, I mean, it fits into the general, uh, one of the general themes that I'm very excited about, which is this idea of trying to incorporate domain knowledge into machine learning systems. Yes. So find ways to provide supervision that um, are alternative to coming up with uh, millions of labeled examples. And so the, the idea of doing semi-supervised learning, the idea of doing transfer learning, uh, the idea of, um, sort of doing the various dimensionality reduction techniques uh, fits into this broader uh, agenda of sort of like trying to see whether we can go beyond uh, this, this, this labeling, uh, which, which is really a major bottleneck and is really preventing us uh, from applying these machine learning techniques in, in domains like the, the kind of applications we are interested in, in the sustainability space where the, the labels are just not available. And even if you wanted more labels, you could not get them. Uh, right. Like we, we, we were we, I, a couple of months ago, I sent some, uh, we were running our model in, uh, in, in Somalia. Uh, we were making poverty predictions in Somalia for, for the World Bank. And, and that's a country where they, they cannot, they were telling me how they cannot even send their uh, people on the ground to collect the data because it's just too dangerous. And so we are literally looking at problems where getting labels is not possible or it's just too expensive. And so we need to think about different ways to uh, put in super to, to incorporate domain knowledge into, into machine learning systems. And this particular AAAI paper that you mentioned, uh, we were looking at whether we can use uh, prior domain knowledge, like uh, um, knowledge about the laws of physics, to supervise object detectors in that case. So supervise convolutional neural networks and teach them how to recognize objects by providing sort of this high-level description of the kind of things that the network should be looking for. So even though we don't have a precise label of saying, okay, here's the object that you should be looking for, uh, one thing that we tried was to see whether it's possible to learn how to recognize these objects by providing a high-level description, like something like a loose description of the dynamics uh, of, the, of the kinematics of the, of the object. And uh, we showed in that paper that it's, uh, it's, it's possible in some cases. We, we provide some proof-of-concept uh, demonstration that it's possible, for example, to train a convolutional neural network to recognize objects moving, uh, falling sort of through the, through the air, uh, just by providing some uh, some prior knowledge about uh, about gravity, essentially, just by saying, well, I know that if an object is falling and it's moving uh, through the air, then there is gravity, and so the, the trajectory will form a parabola. Just by using this prior knowledge, it turns out it was sufficient to, to learn how to recognize uh, objects moving in the in a video. Uh, and so to be a little bit more concrete in this paper, you use the example of projectile, in particular a pillow. Yeah. Uh, and from some of the images that you had in the paper, you can imagine a neural network getting confused between the pillow and the fluorescent lighting. Uh, and presumably the knowledge that you're giving it about the laws of motion, if you will, the, the physics of a projectile pillow um, will help the network figure out where the pillow is. Exactly. And then it strikes me that perhaps this is relatable to your your research on crop yields in, you know, for example, uh, you may know, have knowledge about seasonality in the way, or if not crop yields, the poverty piece, but you may have if, uh, information about seasonality and uh, how you know, tree leaf colors change over time, or there's all kinds of things that we know about the physical world. And right. it, one would presume that the more we can incorporate that into our models, the smarter those models will be. Right. Uh, and so how exactly do you, how do you incorporate that into a model? Is it an algebraic representation of some sort or... 
So yeah, so the, in the AAA paper, we were only looking at sort of like algebraic representation in the case of, of physics law or using logical representation. We also had another example where we showed that if you know some, uh, you have some prior knowledge that you can describe using uh, using logical forms, something like uh, whenever object A appears in an image, uh, then object B also is also present in an image. Think this kind of relationship that can be fairly naturally captured using using lo- no, uh, using logic. It turns out it's a, it's a it's a fairly natural framework for humans to to model and to write down sort of prior knowledge about a particular domain. That's uh, those are the two things that we that we explored in the in the AAAI paper. We are doing some uh, some work right now on using simulators. That's another fairly common uh, uh, way in which we can formulate prior knowledge about the domain, especially mm-hmm. in the physical sciences. We might have a rough simulator that gives us a sense of uh, how a particular physical system behaves. And the question was whether some of the things we're exploring right now is to see how to incorporate uh, say a simulator and, and put it together with data, unlabeled data, and see whether we can combine these things together and uh, and use the knowledge that is sort of inherently present in the mm-hmm. in the simulator to provide supervision to the to say neural networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the areas spending some time researching of late is industrial AI and how AI factors into control and optimization scenarios and you know robotics and manufacturing and things like that and the use of simulators is a of key importance in in those areas so it's interesting to see you applying that here as well uh yeah. so are you are we at the the point where you have a how generalizable is the an architecture that can incorporate these types of rules meaning is there you know is the you know a particular law of physics you know baked deeply into the model architecture or the training process or you know can you envision some kind of architecture or training uh, regime that you can feed a, you know, somewhat generic kind of rule or law engine that can bake this stuff in? Yeah, that's a great question. So at the moment, it's all very much uh, specific to particular constraints and particular forms of domain knowledge. At the moment, basically, you have to invest a considerable effort in sort of engineering the right objective function and figuring out how to bake in the prior knowledge into the into the system. So it's, it's a different kind of trade-off where you're sort of, you're still spending a significant amount of time sort of providing supervision to the system. But the, the advantage is that it does not scale linearly in the number of uh, in, in the size of your training data right mm-hmm. uh, if, uh, so it, it's it's an interesting trade-off that might be uh, might be advantageous in some situations but the dream would be as you said to sort of come up with a general language that we can use or a general system that will make it easy to to incorporate prior knowledge into into machine learning systems and but we are not there at the moment we we don't have it but i think that uh, that's what we need in order to make sure that people can use the systems and they can really dramatically reduce the, the amount of training data that they need to solve their their tasks maybe we're not going to be able to get away with the training data completely like we showed in the triple i paper where we didn't use any label at all right. but maybe the hope is that it will work like for, for for us for humans where maybe a handful of examples is enough to to learn how to solve a, an interesting task because and, and maybe just a high level description plus a few examples is enough to to, to solve the problem as opposed to millions of, of labels which which is not how we how we learn i think right right so any thoughts on where you see this all going or uh, how you see it evolving over time or uh, even, you know, simply what you're most excited about right now? Yeah, that's definitely something I, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand how to put in how, how to put in prior knowledge, how to combine it with labels in the most effective way. Also, how to do uh, supervised learning. That's another thing we, we are playing with these days. How do you 
discover structure from data and how far we can push this thing and really how many how much can by how much can we reduce the the need for for training data these are all problems that i'm very excited about in, in thinking about what's the right way to represent knowledge and what's the right way to put the knowledge into the machine learning systems and finally how to reverse the process like here we showed how we can put in some physics and we can make the machine learning system better but ideally i would like to then invert this and, and try to go from and try to distill physics and try to distill knowledge from the from the raw data. I want my machine learning system to come up with a new hypotheses. I want it to discover gravity just mm-hmm. by looking mm-hmm. at the videos. And and I think that's what's really really exciting. I think we're we're we're, we're still far, but I think that would be pretty amazing because then we can really think about using machine learning in the also in the physical sciences. That's a, that's a space in which we haven't seen as much as we not not, not as much as in sort of other kind of application domains, I think. And so I think, but there is a lot of potential for using AI and machine learning in the, in the physical sciences because they're doing more and more of high throughput experiments, collecting massive amounts of data and uh, sort of human time. Humans are really the bottleneck trying to analyze this data, try to figure out what's going on, figure out trends, understand what is interesting, what is not. And right. if we had a way to, to put in uh, machine learning and AI systems to, to help uh, and, and sort of make the process easier, try to automate it a little bit or as much as possible, I think, I think the benefits could be, could be really huge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so we talked about a bunch of uh, your work, in particular, uh, several uh, papers. If someone wanted to, you know, if it's possible to do this, kind of get up to speed on uh, your research and the, you know, the kinds of things we've discussed. Are there, you know, uh, one, two or three papers that would be the kind of key things to, you know, help them understand what you're up to? Yeah. So if you want to learn about the, the, the physics and the domain knowledge, there's the AAAI paper called uh, Supervised Supervised neural network with physics and other domain knowledge uh, for the, the um, sustainability applications. So uh, there are the, the papers you mentioned, there's the science paper, and then the, there is the deep Gaussian process for crop yield prediction, which is also AAAI showing, discussing how to use the Gaussian processes and dimensionality reductions in, in, uh, to deal with uh, remote sensing data. So those are the right places to start. Yeah. And uh, just to close out, if they, um, what's the if someone wants to kind of learn more or get in touch or kind of follow you on uh, social media, if you're out there, any particular coordinates you would uh, point folks to? Yeah, come to my website. It's uh, just to Google my name. It's uh, probably the first thing that comes up on Google. It's uh, you can see all my papers or visit my research group website. Then you can see all the latest stuff. Great. Well, we'll, we'll link directly to it in the show notes so folks won't need to Google it. Uh, but this was uh, a, a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you about the work and I'm really super excited about about the work you're doing. The papers are, are really interesting and I learned a ton. Thanks so much, Great. Stefano. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Once again, thanks so much for listening and for your continued support. Don't forget to share your favorite quote from this show to get one of our new stickers. You can share them via the show notes page, via Twitter, via our Facebook page, or via a comment on YouTube or SoundCloud. Please use the hashtag TwimmelAI on Twitter. The notes for this show will be up on TwimmelAI.com slash talk slash 15, where you'll find links to Stefano and the various resources mentioned in the show. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.